I wanted to introduce to you Dr. Bruce Beloyan, who teaches at Azusa Pacific University. Just a very instrumental man in my life, invested in me for quite a few years, and I'm still alive. He went with us to Israel last year, teaching during our pilgrimage, and it's just a real pleasure that I could introduce him here. Please welcome Dr. Bruce Beloyan. He'll be teaching the entire book of Exodus right now. Well, good morning. We're going to look at the book of Exodus in the month of July. So Exodus in July. And we're going to do this all at Regen for the entire month. And here's how it's going to work. I'll be in the mornings doing stuff out of Exodus. And then in the evenings, one of my colleagues has a brother that lives in Berkeley. They're very close and they never get to see each other. So he's agreed to come up here and take the evenings because I have to be someplace else. And so Miguel and I are going to do Exodus in July. And just a warning to you if you ever plan things with someone, never plan things at a Cuban bakery. Because <laughs> Miguel and I, after we talked it all over with Albert, he agreed to Exodus. We went to the Marengue Cuban uh, Bakery in Monrovia, California, and we came up with the weirdest distribution of texts. So if you'd like to know what's in chapter one, you have to come tonight because we aren't covering chapter one today. And the first half of chapter one, which just has these really cool stories, and if you miss them, your life will be deeply impoverished. That's all done tonight. So I'm going to start in chapter two, okay? So just so you know, uh, and you say, well, that's weird. Hey, we were at a Cuban bakery, and it was good, too. So sort of a sugar high. Those of you who know Pastor Albert really well, if you'd like some juicy tidbits about Albert, I sell that. <laughs> but Albert's actually never been one of my students. He um, is very close friends with my two oldest boys. But we started meeting, I don't know how all that started, we must have met for, I don't know how long, about three, four times a month. And Albert is not a former student. Albert is a friend. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But let's begin. And if you have a Bible with you or pull one out of the pew, I stole mine out of the pew. And so why don't you turn to chapter 2, the book of Exodus. And before I start, I was watching you as you came in. And I kept struggling with this message because I thought, I know I'm supposed to speak on this, but I felt really funny about speaking on this message on a Sunday morning until I kept watching who came in. And then I thought, I see now why I felt compelled to stay with this text. But here's my question to you. How does the God of the universe save the world? And if you've lived in the world, you know it needs saving. And secondly, how does he select his key servants? And that's what we're going to look at today. Okay? How does God, like, go through Oakland and figure out which ones are to be his key servants? How does he go through the, the city of Monrovia, where I'm from, or, or the city of Sacramento, where Frank was raised? And how does he do this? Let me first of all tell you how he doesn't do it. He doesn't do a national test, and whoever scores the highest on Bible knowledge gets selected. It's actually totally what you would not expect. So go to chapter 2, verse 11. And what I'm going to read to you is the only two stories 
we have of Moses when he was your age. We know a little bit about his birth. We'll talk about that tonight. We'll learn a little bit about his childhood, which is extremely weird. We'll learn about that tonight. But the only time when you would think you would know who a person is or what they should do in preparation to be influential in a positive way in the world, that's in chapter two. And it's only in two stories, and they're seemingly unrelated, but I think when we're done in a few minutes, you'll see they're exactly alike. So here we go. Verse 11, it says, One day, when Moses had grown up, and by the way, he grew up the adopted son of a princess. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Middle East. I was there once in Cairo, and I went to the Cairo Museum. And uh, the guide never stopped talking. I was so bored, I wandered off and uh, found that the other person that I was really close to, we had wandered off. And so we just started being our own tour guides. And we came upon this chair, and I guess it was an ancient throne chair placed for one of the pharaohs. Fascinating, beautiful woodwork. And then underneath the chair were nine sticks. And that fascinated me because they were in the shape of a snake with a human head and then a snake body. And so, you know, it's the Cairo Museum. You can actually touch stuff because they don't really know how to display that stuff very well. So I was looking at them, you know, and oh, I, you know, in America, we'd put it behind glass and it'd be bulletproof and stuff. But you could actually go and look at it. So I turned them, trying to be respectful, and I turned each one and I looked at each head and because I'm half Middle Eastern, I began to recognize that every single head was a different nationality. And then I was aware that the Egyptians, who are Negroid, they knew all the racial characteristics of all the peoples around them. And every one of those heads was a different race. And what those heads represented was the nation groups that the pharaoh would place under his chair so they're under his feet. And they had subjected those people. And I thought that was fascinating, great symbolism, you know, all done with these little pieces of wood. As I looked at them, it made me think of Exodus chapter 2. The pharaoh and the Egyptian people knew exactly who was who Egypt wasn't quite like America is today where you know, we intermarry and I think I'm seven different races. I'm a, you know, a British Isle mix. You know, I found out years ago I got a little Dutch in me as well and I'm Scottish, Irish, English, and then Armenian, which isn't really close to England. But in those days they did not intermarry and it was very unusual. So one day Moses, when he had grown up, went out to see his people, the people that if you looked in a mirror would look like you. And he saw an Egyptian, who you could easily tell the difference of, beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, Moses is a member of a slave race. He's at the bottom of the pecking order. He's born low. He's in a loser group. The Egyptians are the highborns. Like when my parents, on my dad's side, moved to Fresno, if you went to Fresno State and you were an Armenian, you could not join a sorority. They did not allow Armenians to join sororities. And they did not allow one of the greatest 
football players that the local high schools produced to play on Fresno State's team because he was Armenian. I think he went to Berkeley and became a national runner or something. But there's always been prejudice. And Moses, of course, is at the bottom end of that. But he's raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. So he went out to look at those who didn't live the life of privilege he lived. So watch what happens. He saw someone beating one of his people. So he looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. In other words, he committed what? Murder. You say, oh, so that's how God selects you. Hmm. Then he went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why did you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. If this common slave knows I killed an Egyptian, somehow this has gotten everywhere. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. And Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So, what do you do if you want to be selected by God and become the most famous man in the entire Old Testament? You say, who's the most famous? Moses. Who's number two? Uh, it's a long list. It's Moses, and then Isaiah, David, you know, on the whole bunch of people, Jeremiah, Isaiah, etc., etc. But Moses is clearly the most important person God used in the Old Testament. Okay? So what do we know about it? When he's young, he commits murder and has to run as a fugitive. And as he runs, we know where Midian roughly is. He went south and probably... If you watch Sisu Beetle Mills, The Ten Commandments, you'll know that he got through the desert, showed up at a well, and when he got there, he sat down. And here you need to know a little bit about Old Testament culture. In the old days, they didn't have malt shops like in the 1950s. That's where you met girls. You say, well, how do you meet girls now in Berkeley's Oakland area? Um, I don't know, but I don't think it's a malt shop, and I don't think you try to find a well. But in the ancient world, you went to the well. That's where you met cute girls, because that's how Jacob will meet his wife, Rachel. Okay? So you say, well, this is weird. Yes, it is. But he sits down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to fill water for their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. After all, they're chicks, and they can't fight like men can. So they pushed him away from the well and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home, their father Ruel said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Then he said to his daughters, well, where is he? Why have you left the man? 
call him that he may eat bread. American cities are losing this. The suburbs, I think, have lost this. We Americans have lost a great thing that's native to so many of the countries that we've all come from. Hospitality is highly regarded. I remember driving down Highway um, 101 when I was in college, and I saw this guy by the side of the road, and I thought, I got a car, it's empty. He's thumbing his way, he was a young Hispanic man. And so I pulled over, I said, you need a ride? He says, I do, I do. He says, I need to get to Carpentry, it's where I live. He says, my car's not working right now. He said, would you give me a ride? And I said, sure, get in. So we drove, you know, what, 15 miles, whatever it is. And uh, he got out and he said, thank you very much. And I said, no problem. And then he looked at me and he had this interesting look on his face. From now on, he says, mi casa, su casa. What was he saying to me? And what was he really saying? I will always be kind to you if you ever need something. I will be hospitable to you as you have been hospitable to me. Does that make sense? I one time picked up two hitchhikers in Albuquerque, January 7th. It's cold. It was seven degrees outside. I remember that. And I remember my dad says, you always pick up hitchhikers. I don't want you doing on this long trip you're taking. And I thought, okay, honor your father and your mother. But I was coming back from back east, and I thought, man, I'm halfway home. My dad would pick up someone in seven degrees. So I pulled over, and I got these two guys in. They said, we're going to California. I said, so am I. Hop in. I drove for about four hours and got really tired. And the guy says, you want me to drive? I says, fine. So I climbed in the back and slept for four hours. And then, you know, we kept moving towards, we were going to Flagstaff at the time. And I climbed back in the front seat. And I said, so why are you guys going to California? And the guy says, um, statue of limitations. I have to be out of Cincinnati for seven years so I won't be arrested. <laughs> and I said, great. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I don't think that guy would have ever stole a thing from me. I had been hospitable to him, and he would have been hospitable to me. You see, that doesn't always happen. If you're a woman, I would not recommend this. But uh, Moses has helped someone, and this man's honest, godly response is, you should bring him home. We should feed him. And so they do. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Okay. Two weird stories. Moses kills someone trying to defend someone who's getting pushed around. Then Moses goes to a well and fights with shepherds. What do the two stories have in common? Because your author carefully put these stories here. What do they have in common? These are the only things we know about the man. So if you can figure this out, you'll know who he's going to pick and select or what God, the God of the universe, is looking for. Say, well, he helped chicks and committed murder. Is that really what he did? 
How about this? The God of the Bible is looking for people who will step out of their comfort zones, take a risk, and help someone in need. You say, well, he did it wrong the first time. He killed someone. Yeah, and the narrator nor the rest of the story ever comments negatively on that. And then why did he get involved with the girls getting water? Because they were getting pushed around. You say, well, this is weird. You would think God would pick someone who knew the Bible well or who prayed a lot or who did a lot of fasting or did a lot of religious things. None of that is here. All that matters to the God of the universe is can you look beyond your own nose to someone who's in trouble? That's what he's looking for. Because Moses is going to be a deliverer of who? A slave race. Remember when Jesus came to earth and he went down to the seashore, kind of like Lakeshore Avenue here, and he, of course, wasn't as nice then. It was just a simple fishing area. And he walked up and there was a tax collector there. We know his name was Matthew. And Jesus went up to him and said, "Um, would you like a job? Follow me. Levi just left everything and followed Jesus because, see, he was a loser. He was a slave to money. He had sold his soul to make money off his own people by collecting money for a foreign government that was oppressing his people. And he was a slave. And no rabbi would talk to a tax collector. He just wasn't done. Everybody hated these people. And I think you'd be a little shocked if you walked out. Well, probably you wouldn't be if you know Albert. If you walked out the door and two, three, four, five pimps came up from the Lakeland area and they just said, hey, Albert, bro. You know, and he knows them all by name. And he said, oh, pastors don't do that. Yeah, but Jesus did. And the guy was so excited that Jesus had reached out to him, that he threw a banquet and he invited all his other criminal friends. And Jesus went. And what did the religious leadership of the day do? They criticized. By the way, speaking about the Holy Spirit, right around all those passages, just before them are the words, and Jesus was filled with the Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit of God, you will look for people who are captives. Say, no, you're filled with the Spirit of God, you speak in tongues, you know, you have this holy glow about you, and you know a lot of Bible verses, and you say, oh, praise the Lord a lot. Ah, that's not in the Gospels. But if you meet someone and they're hurting, or you meet someone and they're being looked down upon, and you immediately are drawn to them, then maybe the God who created heaven and earth has come inside of you. And Moses, although was born to privilege, somehow saw someone getting pushed around and got involved. And then when he's running for his life, he saw these girls getting pushed around, so he got involved. And here's what I love about the beauty and the simplicity, seemingly, of these two stories. If you have the courage to get involved 
you could lose a lot. Moses lost all the privilege that he had. And he was running like a fugitive. But then he also got a cool chick for a wife. If we have time, Albert and I are discussing whether we're going to do the Sapporo story. Um, he actually really married up. He married well. You say, how so? Oh, in all ways. But if you're going to get involved with people, you will be paying prices. And if you want to prepare yourself to be used of God in this century and in your area and among your family, I think the key thing the Holy Spirit is looking for in our lives is will we have the courage to step out of our comfort zones because we see someone hurting and we'll just get involved. You say, well, what would this look like? Well, let me give you an example um, from a high school kid. He was walking to school on his way to a uh, upper middle class high school in the city of Fresno. It's called Bullard High. It was on his way. It was about two blocks from his house. And he knew as he's walking that there was a window in the house that he came from that was in the kitchen and looked out the street that he was walking down. And he knew his mother always washed dishes out that window. And she was a very godly woman, so she was no doubt praying for her son as he went off to his secular high school. And this boy was walking along, and he came to one cross street, just a block and a half, a couple hundred yards from his home. And there was a high school girl, a year younger than him. He was a sophomore, she was a freshman. And this was a long time ago when they wore those really, really, really short dresses. And this girl was sitting on the curb with her legs spread out in a very, very unladylike manner, dragging on a cigarette. And the Christian boy looked at the girl and thought, this kid's hurting. First of all, she's dressed nicely, she's very cute, but she has no self-respect or you wouldn't sit like that. And why would you sit in a gutter and drag on a cigarette? And something inside of him said, go up and say hello and go hi. And he thought, my mother will see me talking to a girl smoking a cigarette. This girl's obviously sitting very indecorously. And he walked on to school. You say, what a loser. Who was that guy? That was me. And as I walked by, the Holy Spirit said, you're an idiot. Well, it didn't quite say it that way, but that's how I read it. And I think that stuck with me a long time. I thought, I have no right to walk this earth knowing the God of the Bible and to ever walk past life, someone like that, and not realize I'm walking past the very people he would have sat down. And you say, well, were you shy when you're that age? Very shy. What would you have said? Probably something dumb, but it, who cares? Who cares? I think that's what God is looking for us. You know, I was listening to your teacher thing. What a great idea. Fabulous. I really pray that it goes well. And maybe as teachers, if we're going to be like the God of the Bible, who should be our favorite students? The ones that might burn the class down if you're not always in the room? Or the one that won't talk? Or the one that can't spell? or whatever, and they're in the ninth grade. 
It's how God would see things. I think that's what God is looking for. Then let me throw one concept out at you. As you read the Bible, the Bible is going to reach out to hurting people, to enslaved people, to lost people, to people who need a savior, and God is going to use other people. He's not just going to write his messages in the sky through clouds. He's going to use people. And let me explain what I mean by that. I teach a class at the university. It's a religious university, and we make our students take three Bible classes, no matter what your major is. And I teach one that is taken by, it's a, it's a GE course, and it's called The Life and Teachings of Jesus. In one semester, about second or third class period, um, I said, you know, before we go any further, I said, stop for a moment, and I would like you to write at the bottom of your notes the person that's influenced your life the most powerfully since you've been on the planet. Write their name down. And I waited a couple minutes, and I went on lecturing. And then about 10 minutes later, I stopped, and I pointed to a student way in the back, and I said, who'd you write down? And they said, oh, and they, they read it. I think some of the first person said it was my mother. And then the next person I pointed to, it was an uncle. And then another one, it was a Sunday school teacher. And we went through all, I had 41 students that semester. I remember this. And then I said, now raise your hand if any of you have been the most influenced in your personal life towards God by someone famous in the Christian world or like, say, your senior pastor. One person raised their hand. That fascinated me. Next semester, third or fourth lecture in, they were copiously taking notes because I give a lot of information that I didn't make them read a book on. I said, you got to know this, but take good notes. And then I stopped them. I said, now I know you're taking notes, so right in the bottom of your notes, I want you to write the person that's most influenced you. And then went on lecturing, stopped again, and went through the, almost the whole room and then did that question, now raise your hand if who the most, this most important person that you've written in your notes, if it's a famous Christian leader or it's a senior pastor, no one raised their hand. So who's the most influential people in the lives of people who go to church? And that has haunted me, because you say, well, who would you write down? Well, I love my senior pastor. He made the Bible sing. And I've been fascinated with it ever since. And he was very kind to me. And I was kind of a kid that needed to be kind to. And you say, did you admire your pastor? Yes. Were you influenced by your pastor? Yes. But if we got really close to you and watched who you are, nothing comes from nothing. The apple never falls too far from the tree. And if you analyzed who I am and what I do and anything that I do that is good, and you tried to go back and trace it, it all goes back to lay people people that I live with and knew. For, for me, a great deal of it came from a man um, I worked with. He was my boss. He was, he was a Christian. We were loosely related, so he called me his pagan cousin, Bruce. I was somewhat his cousin, so I thought that's fair. I knew I was a pagan, so I was fine with that. And he passed away last year, and I went back into my, when I got home, I was pretty moving service I went to, and I opened my last email, like last, you know, the last letter rather that I got from him, and I forgot that at the bottom 
of the letter he had written, oh, by the way, I release you from your paganness. You say, well, how did you learn about Jesus? Well, how did you come so powerfully, powerfully impacted? Uh, He was my boss. I loaded boxes on trucks. But I learned to see the face of God on a loading dock. And you say, why are you a teacher? Because the godliest man I ever knew was a teacher. And five years into my teaching career, I was walking towards my office, and I'm half Armenian, which means we're a lot like Jews. We really know how to count all the money in our pockets. Uh, we're very, very uh, good business people, and, you know, and I know how to do all that money thing. It just comes, it's like a genetic thing with us, you know. And I'm walking towards my office. I thought, what are you doing this for? There's no money in teaching. Come on, come on, you're trying to get a PhD. It's going to cost you forever, and it's going to cover all this time, and you're never going to make that much. What in the world are you doing this for? And then it hit me. For the last 15 years of my life, unconsciously, my goal was to be like those two teachers I knew. And they taught, so I was going to express my love to God the way they did. Does that make sense? One more thought. If God's calling you, it's not really about you. You say, what do you mean? I thought we're talking about the call of God, how he selects people. It is. But let me share something about how the Bible works. And maybe just through two stories. Years ago, I moved to L.A. I'm from the Central Valley. And after being there a year, going to Fuller Seminary, I was taking 20 quarter units a term because I, I had no money and I had to get done. And uh, I got this phone call from Youth for Christ, where I would used to work. They were a local chapter, and they said, um, hey, would you mind coming and speaking to our staff? We've heard about you. And I said, sure, whatever you want. When do you want me? This is Saturday. I said, all right. So I got there, and when I stood up to speak, I said, thank you for inviting me, because I need to speak more than you need to listen. And this girl's hand went in the air. I said, yes. She says, Wow, you're a very humble man. I said, no, talk to my wife. Not the case at all. This is really true. I need to be here more than you understand. I was dying inside, going to seminary, just shriveling up like a prune, learning all this theology and stuff. What really fed my soul was giving. And then not too far down from you is another church. And the pastor there is an ethnic pastor teaching in a Middle Eastern church. And how he became a pastor is they lost their pastor and they knew he had some training. So they said, would you fill in a Sunday or two? And he filled in for a year and a half. And when they went to select a pastor, they selected him, even though he didn't have an MDiv and the two people that he was candidating against had MDivs. They picked him because he fed their souls. He could make the Bible come alive. And he basically told them, I needed to preach every Sunday more than you needed to hear because I was in clinical depression. And when I preached, my soul began to heal. Let me show you what I mean by that. Go over to the next verse, and we'll just end with this. Verse 23. 
During those many days, the king of Egypt died. This is the guy that tried to kill Moses. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. So this is years later. The Bible indicates maybe a whole generation later. And they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. You say, does God struggle with Alzheimer's and forgets things? No, 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 no. The word in Hebrew is a hard one to translate. We don't have a word in English that is similar to this word. And the word that we translate, remember, that's the closest thing we can say in English. Have you ever had this experience? Oh, oh, that's right, I remember to help you. And then boom, you get going and you do something. Well, the word in Hebrew means God has decided to act. And so they thought, well, maybe the closest we have to that is we usually get going when we remember we've made a promise. And of course, God never forgets but God was waiting for the people of Israel to pray. And then next verse is the beginning of the call of Moses. You've probably heard of it. We're going to talk about it next week. You know, remember Moses met some amazing shrubbery? <laughs> you say, well, what are you pointing out to us? I'm just pointing out to you how the Holy Spirit designed the book of Exodus. You have people in slavery... You have the cool things you're going to learn tonight in chapter 1, which are filled with miraculous things. And when you hear tonight, you'll go, oh my gosh, God was really involved in preserving this little boy. This little boy should have been crocodile food. And he grows up to be a prince of Egypt. And then he has this debilitating characteristic. He defends the weak and he loses everything but gets a, a good woman. How about this? The answer to the prayer at the end of chapter 2 was started two generations before they prayed. And there may be some people in your life, in your families, or the city of Oakland, who maybe a decade from now, or next year, or next week, or even several decades from now, are going to finally, in their hurt and in their pain, are going to turn their hearts to God and he will be ready to help them because he's already started the answer and the answer is his working in you. I like that. I don't think our lives are meaningless. I think as Christians we should understand that God would love to use us let me just close. I, I went to Chick-fil-A for the first time in my life. I didn't know there was Chick-fil-A's until they made the news. And then they built one across from the university. So I thought, maybe you should go. It's been there quite a while. A lot of your students work there. And so I met with a student there who wanted to talk about some things. He's graduating in, in a few months in December. And he said, hey, I want to talk to you about my future. And he said, what about this option? What about this? And we, I listened. And, and the whole time he was talking, I thought, I don't have a crystal ball. You know, I auditioned for the role of the Holy Spirit. I was never given the job. I don't know what this guy's life. And so you say, well, what did you say to him? I just said this, from what I know, his name is Jacob. I says, Jacob, from what I know is he does know the future. He knows 
where you're going. He knows what he would like to do. And he knows exactly how to prepare you. So let him do his thing. Don't be afraid to go out of your comfort zones. And you say, did you tell him he should learn to look out for people who are on the edge? No, no, he's already there. This guy's really heading for trouble. Because if you'd like to live a very happy, sort of pristine Christian life, never care about anybody who's hurting. It'll screw your life up. And this guy's life, he's already got one foot in the bucket. And I said, you know, he knows how to prepare you. I would chill out. I would just listen. I would pray. Ask him to guide you. He will hear those prayers. He listens. And he will guide you. And then my wife and I were driving up to come here, and we didn't do it all one day. We were driving up yesterday, and I said, and I started telling about Jacob. I said, it's amazing. Already God has worked in his life to do things I could never do in 100 years. God's preparing him for a certain way. And who knows how it's going to go, what way it'll take. And who knows what he's going to do with you. And you say, does that mean to really be the select of God, I have to be a pastor? I don't think so. Moses wasn't a clergyman, when you think about it. He was a politician. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, I think Albert and I love your word because it, it kind of shows us you. And you are exciting to know. And you are encouraging to know. And you kind of look down at a world that has shot itself in the foot. And instead of abandoning it, you are intensely interested in it. And you've decided to meet and deal with it through us. And we would like your Holy Spirit to call us and to bring us to yourself. And we'd like to be part of that work. And we don't know what that'll look like, Lord, but we want to be part of it. And Father, also, we just ask one more thing from you. Would you guide us and would you help us be super aware of who needs to be just reached out to, who needs to be cared about, who needs to be stood up for? And may, Father, may we have the courage to do what you'd ask. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, in the name of Jesus. Amen.